Not only did the Lord knock over their idol and break its head and its hands off, the Lord also sent some kind of horrific tumors that killed a large percentage of the population to any city where the ark was sent. And the nation was now at a breaking point, and the population cried out to have the ark removed. And they knew that the source of all of their suffering was from the hand of the Lord. Let's look now at the text and see how the Philistines respond, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of God, the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him, uh, return to him a guilt offering, then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them... Did they not send the people away, and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put it in a box at its side of the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go its way, and watch." If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm to us. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to a cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes, they saw the ark, and they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. 
He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Let's turn and let's pray. Father God, we ask now for your blessing over the preaching of this word. Lord, I pray that you would give me a clear mind and the ability to speak clearly. Lord, my voice is struggling after a long day of speaking yesterday, and I just ask, Father God, that you would give me strength in my voice, that I would be able to proclaim the word faithfully and truthfully and accurately. We also ask, Lord, for every person here that knows you, that this would be a warning sign for us, that what we see the Philistines doing here, that we would guard ourselves against this kind of unbelieving, unrepenting activity. We also ask, Lord, that in your great mercy that you would cause us to love you more because of what we see here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How can you appease the anger of the Lord? If he has set his face against you and he is determined to harm you, what could you possibly do that would cause him to relent? That is the exact question that the Philistines were trying to answer at the outset of today's chapter. And we're going to see how they systematically did everything the exact opposite way from the way they should. As we make our way through the text, we are going to see five habits of highly unrepentant people on full display. And this is certainly not an exhaustive list of the way unrepentant people function, but it should serve and be helpful to us in revealing what is going on in the heart of those who do not truly repent. There was a council that was formed, including the rulers of each of the five great cities of the Philistines, as well as many of the priests of their pagan temples and diviners in the land. The priests, these were people that were involved in dedicating themselves to the pagan worship of foreign gods. Gods like Dagon that we learned about last week, the mermaid god. And yet, we also see there are diviners here. What are they? The diviners, they're a little bit different. Whenever you hear that word divination in the Old Testament, it's speaking about people whose entire role, their entire job was to divine or hear the mind of their gods, to read their mind as it were. That's why in English you hear that word divine in the word divination. The way that divination was practiced looked a little bit different across time and the geography of the Middle East. The oldest historic examples we have is of diviners taking a sheep and killing it and cutting out its liver and then chopping the liver into small pieces and looking into it in order to discern the mind of their God. Later on, other nations and other cultures would bring a large variety into the mix. Sometimes they would pour water on the back of an ox, and if it fell off on one side, then they would determine that that, that their God meant one thing, and if it fell off on the other side, then their God must mean another. And sometimes they would cast lots or cut up birds or examine the entrails of animals. The most disturbing depictions in history include the diviners dissecting the body of a small human child that was sacrificed to their gods. Divination is wicked. And I highlight the divination action that is taking place here because God hates this kind of activity. He hates it as he hates all forms of witchcraft. Before the Israelites ever entered into the promised land, the Lord told them in Deuteronomy chapter 18 
There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or daughters as an offering, or anyone who practices divination, or anyone who tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or anyone who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Now notice he does not say those things are an abomination. Anyone who does these things is an abomination. These people themselves are abominable to God. And then he says, it is because of these abominations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And then he says, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess They listen to fortune tellers, and they hear diviners. But as for you, the Lord God has not allowed you to do this. Now, do you see the link that is made here between God's dispossession of the Canaanite people from their land and their wicked practices like divination? Later in 1 Samuel, we're going to see that one of the key issues that the Lord takes with Saul is his involvement with divination. Now, I I belabor this point so long because I think it is really important for us to see that the Philistines are taking the worst possible approach that you could take. If they really wanted to know how to please the Lord and how to appease his wrath, you do not go about it by asking the very people that he calls an abomination to help you. If they really wanted to know how to please the Lord, they should have gone and asked the priests of Israel, what must we do to appease your God? not the priests and diviners of their own gods. Or they should have just prayed to the Lord directly rather than performing practices that the Lord hates. Now at this point, all they care about is ensuring that the God of the Israelites is not going to be angry with them any longer. But they go about doing this by doing the very thing that God says is the source of his anger against them. Several years ago, I spoke to an individual uh, who told me that before he was a Christian, he felt that God was angry with him. He believed that God was mad at him because of all of these terrible circumstances that were going on in his life. Certain family members of his had passed away. Uh, There were car accidents. There were bills. There were all sorts of terrible things going on in his marriage. And he came to me, and in our conversation, he said, I knew God was mad at me. I just didn't know what to do. So what I decided to do was I went to every medium and fortune teller and palm reader that I could find, and I asked them, what should I do? And I listened to their their words, and I did whatever they told me. In particular, he picked up taking tarot card readings for himself. Now, I didn't even know that supposedly in witchcraft you can do that, but he bought tarot cards and learned how to use them, and he would sit there telling his own fortune day after day after day. Now, thankfully, that man eventually came to know Christ, and he rejected all of these forms of witchcraft, but he was doing exactly what the Philistines were doing, and exactly what many unsaved people do when they believe that God is angry with them. The first habit that we're going to see here of highly unrepentant people is that, the, is that they will, instead of going to God in the way that he has prescribed, they will twist what the Lord has told them to do, and they will, instead of going to the church or the people of God or someone who can help them, they instead go to unsaved, ungodly, unholy alternatives to point them not to the way of the Lord, but to the way of destruction. They have no idea how to appease the wrath of God. Or to say it in a much more concise way, unrepentant people reject God's only avenue for salvation. In verse 3, they have this great idea. You see these Philistine lords, these five pseudo-kings, they go and they say, how can we make God stop hating us and hurting us? And the, the diviners and the priests have this great idea. 
if you send the ark of God away to Israel, just don't send it empty. They say, by all means, return it to him with a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Now, early on in the process, the Philistines had determined the best thing to do was get the ark as far away from them as possible. But if you remember last week, they don't actually send it back to Israel. Instead, their first course of action was just to send it up the road to the next Philistine city and let them face the consequences. Well, now everyone is starting to be open to the idea that maybe, just maybe, the best way to appease the anger of the Lord is get rid of it from our country entirely, just send it back to Israel. But the priests and the diviners are very clear. You can't just send it back. If you send it back and you don't send anything with it, God's still going to be mad. Instead, you need to send it with a guilt offering. Now, this is really, really interesting for two reasons. First, it reveals that the Philistines must have had at least a passing familiarity with the Jewish laws regarding the worship of Yahweh. Guilt offerings were a very particular kind of offering that God commanded the Israelites to perform. This is not something that you find in the other Canaanite religions. The second common habit of unrepentant people that we are going to see today is a tendency to take the actual practices of God's people and warp them. In Leviticus chapter 7, the Lord explained exactly what was required for an offering. You had to take an animal, and you had to kill it in a very particular way. And you had to do certain things with the kidneys and with the liver, and you had to do certain things with the blood, sprinkling it in particular places. But instead, they decided, you know what? Let's just take gold and shape it into the form of tumors and into the form of mice and send them instead. Now, the tumors are easily explained because they were trying to tell God, please stop giving us these tumors. And up to this point, we haven't heard anything about mice. Now, there's speculation as to why mice are included. Some people believe that the Israelites, or I'm sorry, the Philistines thought that the mice were spreading the disease. Now, that's possible, but I think it's a bit anachronistic because even as far as the Black Plague, people did not understand the idea that rats and mice were the ones spreading the disease. No, more likely it has what uh, to do with what it says later on, where the mice were in their land to ravage it. That's what it says in verse 5. So more likely, there was just a massive influx of mice or rats, the same word in Hebrew, that infested all of their, all of their fields and were destroying their food. Now, we don't hear anything about that until this point, so I'm not going to be dogmatic on it, but I think that's what's going on. But you need to know that highly unrepentant people who realize that God is angry with them will often adopt what they perceive to be a Christian action, and then they will use that twisted version of their service to the Lord as a reason that God should favor them. This past week, I went through the logbooks of all of the attendance records of this church going all the way back to 1996. And they were in logbooks that were kind of falling apart and the paper was not in good shape and some of them had gotten wet. There was all sorts of issues that I transferred them into an, uh, a digital document so that I could preserve the records of sorts. And as I was going through them, I was not surprised to see that the highest attendance day for every single year was exactly the same. And of course, you know what that is. Easter Sunday, except for on 2020, of course, when nobody gathered for Easter Sunday. Every year, that was by far the highest day for attendance. And I can already tell you that May 6th of this coming year, 2024, is going to be the highest day for attendance at Levittown Baptist Church for the entire year. And if the pattern holds, 30% of the people who were there that day will not attend this church at all again for the rest of the year. Why does that happen? 
It happens because highly unrepentant people think that God will be happy with them if they just show up to church on Easter and maybe Christmas or Mother's Day. Highly unrepentant people will often feel guilty and they will find some form of philanthropy or service or ceremony or comparison or comprehension or decision or restitution or affliction or meditation or seeking affirmation to in some sense assuage their guilt. Yes, if I just do this, it will make God happy. If I just make him a couple of tumors out of gold or mice out of gold, then he will be happy. If I just give him a form of a guilt offering, he will be happy. If I just give him what I think he would want, then he will be happy. Now, the second reason that I find this guilt offering really interesting is simply that it acknowledges that they were guilty. Only guilty people make guilt offerings. So on some level, the Philistines were willing to openly declare that they had done something wrong. But do you know what's really surprising? They never state what they did wrong. They never acknowledge exactly where they failed. They don't confess that they were guilty of idol worship, and obviously not, because they set their God back up and they started worshiping it again. They did not confess that they were guilty of attacking God's people or trying to destroy his covenant uh, family because they are going to keep attacking the people of God. And throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, you're going to see battle after battle after battle of this same nation, these same cities, continually to do what they should not. You see, the third habit of highly unrepentant people is they will only acknowledge sin generally, but they will not get too specific. If you press anyone, just about anybody, they're likely willing to acknowledge they're not a perfect person. I have only ever met one person who has told me they never once did anything wrong. Almost everybody that I have ever met is willing to say, yes, I've done a couple things wrong here or there, but John 3.20 says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Nobody likes their sin to be examined too closely. Jim Elliff writes about this very thing and says, the man who repents in too great a generality is likely covering up his sins. Proverbs 28:13 says, he who covers his sins will not prosper But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Jameleth continues, If there are no particular changes, there is no repenting. Sin has many heads, like the mythological hydra. It cannot be dealt with in general. It must be cut off one by one. Genuine repentance requires the confession and the willingness to turn away from specific sins, not just the idea of sin in general. James chapter 5, verse 16 tells us, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice that there is a conditional aspect to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, a very common verse that we hear often in this church. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have your Bibles open, I want you to look at verse 6, and I want you to Listen to what the priests of Dagon and the diviners said. They said, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now here's why I want you to look at that. Because that event, the exodus, took place roughly 400 years earlier 
multiple nations away from this place, and it happened in a time that the Philistines hadn't even left the Greek islands yet. These people weren't even in the land when that happened. The United States is only 247 years old. So if we were to find an apt comparison, it would be like me saying to you, don't forget the lessons that you learned from the Thirty Years' War. Does anyone here know anything about the Thirty Years' War? It was huge. It was 30 years long. Of course, Henry knows about it. If you want to know, you can ask him, because I don't really know that much about it. I know that it was between the Protestants and the Catholics in Europe. I know that it was an incredibly long war that had all sorts of drama. But I don't know enough about it to tell you what was going on in the heart of their leaders. But do you see what God had done with the Egyptians? He had made such a spectacle of Egypt 400 years earlier that the Philistines, these people who were so far removed geographically, culturally, linguistically, and in every other way on the timeline, they were so far removed. Yet they knew about not just the Exodus, but about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. One of the interesting things about 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6 is that they share a a significant amount of parallels with the Exodus, both in terms of their structure and in terms of their vocabulary. Even the Philistines began to see these parallels. Even the pagan Philistines are starting to compare themselves here with Egypt and Pharaoh, and they did not want to experience the same plagues that Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt did. So they were determined, let's do something different, and let's get rid of that ark. This brings us to the fourth habit of highly unrepentant people, and that is they are only motivated by the threat of judgment, and they have no interest in or love for God. The Philistines were not actually interested in worshiping Yahweh. They just wanted to avoid destruction. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that the threat of hell and the desire to avoid judgment is one of the things that motivates all true Christians. If you were to listen to anybody's testimony, any true, genuinely saved Christian, they will probably tell you as part of their story that at some point along the way they learned that there is judgment for sin. There is a penalty for sin. That there is an eternity in hell under the wrath of God for those who are sinners. And that is one of the things that the Lord uses to wake us up to who he really is and even to who we really are in our standing before him. I'm not saying that it's wrong to fear that judgment or wrath or to try to avoid it. All true Christians do that. My point is very simply this. That is not what the gospel is all about. The gospel is not just about avoiding judgment. The gospel is about worship and honoring the Lord. Our church is not here to sell fire insurance. The message of the gospel certainly does include safety from the judgment, but the gospel is about being reconciled to a right relationship with the God of the universe. The Philistines had no interest in that kind of relationship, nor do many people whose relationship to the church or Christianity is built around unbiblical attempts to avoid experience judgment by doing everything their own way. So what did the Philistines do? Well, the priests and the diviners, they concoct this plan. Here's what they said to do. You look, you just get two milk cows and put them on a cart or pulling a cart and then just put the ark on it and let them take it wherever they're going to take it. Now, the key to understanding what is going on here, I think, is found in verse 9. Look at that with me. It says, If it, meaning the cart, goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great, us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that this is not 
his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. Now, it seems that even though the entire population of the Philistines have been crying out, acknowledging that God's hand is against them, the priests and the diviners are still on the fence about whether or not this is actually God's judgment or if it's just a random plague that has come about by happenstance. So this entire event is a setup. Look at what the priest suggests. They were not told to get oxen to pull this cart. They were told, get two milk cows. Milk cows don't pull carts. And although I have never tried to get cows to pull a cart, those that know more things about this than I do say that the natural inclination of untrained animals like these would have been either to stop or to pull away from one another. You actually have to train animals, oftentimes from the time they were very young, to be yoked together and actually work together. Otherwise, they never learn, and they struggle to walk and step with one another, and they fall, and they stumble, or they hurt themselves. And these cows in particular, these were cows with very young calves. The instinct of these cows would have been screaming, I need to get back to my babies. Not only because of the natural instinct of animals to hear and protect their little ones, of course that would be driving them, but also because nursing cows must be regularly milked or it creates a lot of physical problems for them. So think about what these priests are doing. These wicked false prophets we're used to lying about their gods. We know that for a fact because we've already seen them attempt to cover up what happened with Dagon when he fell face down. Now, obviously, anyone who walked into that room, anyone who looked at that situation would have determined that it was indeed their god had broken. Their god, at least, even if you were looking at it from a non-theistic point of view, at the very least, their god isn't real. But instead... They worked together to bring up this story about how instead the ground must be so holy that even their God fell down and worshipped it. So now there's another thing to worship. Don't walk on the ground right in front of it. They're used to coming up with stories. They're used to making up lies. And now what they're doing is they're trying to create a narrative around the God of Israel. And they're trying to do that in such a way that they are putting together a a plan that will put God in a position where he can't possibly win. There's no way that these cows are actually going to go to Israel. They were professional con artists. Now, I, I could be wrong here, but I personally think they were expecting this test to go very differently. I think that the priests and the diviners were anticipating that this cart would actually return back to the stall where the babies were, and then they would be able to say, as the priest of Dagon, see, their God's not the one doing this. It's all just a coincidence, as they said. Verse 10. So the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. The cows were not leading themselves. The cows were led by the divine hand of the Lord across the border into the land of Israel. The cows never once gave in to their natural instincts to turn back to their own babies. They never once were hindered by the limitations of their training. There was no doubt in the mind of the Philistine rulers that this was evidence. Truly, there is a God in Israel, and he is protecting this ark. 
Now, how did the Philistines respond? Well, you see it in verse 16. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. This brings us to the fifth and final habit that we'll note today about highly unrepentant people, which is this. As soon as an unrepentant person no longer feels God's hand against them, they will immediately go back to their old way of life. What should the Philistines have done in this circumstance? How should they respond to this incredible proof? Yahweh is real, and he is to be worshipped. Well, they should have rushed across that border, and they should have been waving a white flag, and they should have asked the Israelites, what must we do to know this God of yours? But instead, they saw the ark cross the border, and they immediately determined the best course of action was just go back to worshiping their own headless, handless fish god. Highly unrepentant people often make promises to God. They make promises of every imaginable kind. But as soon as their circumstances change, they forget those promises, and they forget God. There's no lasting change whatsoever. There is no heart of worship. There is no love for God. They're just glad, as far as they can tell, God has now turned a blind eye to them. Now, this is as far as we're actually going to go in studying the text today. We're going to look back at the rest of the chapter next week, Lord willing. But before we land the plane, I want to remind you that it's not only those who are unbelievers who can fall into the habit of unrepentance. In Revelation 2, Jesus said to the Ephesian church, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. This is the Ephesian church, one of the absolute pinnacles of the expressions of the church in the ancient world. This is the church where Timothy had been the pastor. This is a church that Jesus, just in one verse prior in Revelation 2, Jesus himself acknowledged they had done so many things right. This was a church full of people who had genuine faith. But there were areas of their lives that had been ignored. In particular, in that church, he says, you have lost your first love. And they allowed themselves to live in a state of ongoing unrepentance. You certainly do not fall into the same circumstantial category as the Philistines. You certainly do not have the Ark of the Covenant hidden in your home, and you certainly are not experiencing the judgment that they experienced. But perhaps you are in danger of falling into the same spiritual mistakes that they made. At the outset of this sermon, I asked two questions. How can you appease the anger of the Lord? If he has set his face against you, and he is determined to harm you, what could you possibly do that would cause him to relent? In the New Testament, we find the word propitiation. That word literally means to appease the wrath of God. Well, how can that happen? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 gives us the good news this way. It says, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people in order to take away the wrath of God for the sins of the people. How can you appease the wrath of God? How can your sins be propitiated? They can't. You can't. There is nothing that you have that God would accept as a payment for guilt. He does not want your golden tumors. He does not want your golden mice. He doesn't want anything else that you can create. The only way that God's wrath has ever been appeased is through God pouring out his wrath on his own son at the cross. God the Father, Father crushed his own son so that he might give us his righteousness. Do you know what's so ironic about what happened with the Philistines in this chapter? 
The word propitiation in Greek is the word hilasterion. That word is also found as a reference to an Old Testament object. When the Septuagint was written and they were trying to figure out how to turn the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, they looked at one object and they referred to it as the hilasterion, the propitiation. What is that? It is what we now call the mercy seat. It's the top of the box of the Ark of the Covenant, the very box that was in the land of the Philistines, the very place that they should have gone to to find mercy and appeasement from the wrath of God. Instead, they just said, get it away from us. Instead of running to him for mercy, where they could actually find it, they said, let's just put it on a cart and send it away. They said, we don't want to end up hard in our heart like Pharaoh. But their actions reveal that that is exactly what happened. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord as your Savior, do not harden your heart. Turn and repent for real. The Lord welcomes sinners, and he does so with open arms until they, for everyone who comes to him in faith with a heart of repentance. If you are here and you don't know him, turn to him, trust in him, believe that the gospel is of value for your salvation, believe that you can be forgiven by the blood of Christ, and he will forgive you, and you will be saved. And brothers and sisters... The bulk of those who are in this room right now are those who know the Lord. If you are walking in any kind of ongoing sin, I also call on you. Do not harden your heart, but turn in genuine repentance to the Lord. Don't try to get him away from you. One of the things I see most commonly in those who are trapped in sin is a desire to separate themselves from the people of God while they are in sin. They just know it's uncomfortable to be around them. It's uncomfortable to come to church. It's uncomfortable to go to community group. It's uncomfortable to go to a day in the Word. It's uncomfortable to go to anything where the church might be because we don't like it when our sin is discovered or exposed. So let me just work through this stuff first, and then I will come back. That is the definition of a hypocrite, an actor. It's very necessary that whatever is going on in our own hearts, wherever we find sin that is hidden, that we deal with it. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But there's a step involved, and that is the confession of sin. So, brothers and sisters, if you were caught in any sin today, do not respond like the Philistines. Instead, turn to the mercy seat. Turn to Jesus Christ. Turn to the one who forgives, and you will be healed. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that today as we have considered the ridiculous nature of these Philistines and the bizarre way in which they found to refuse to repent, I pray that we would not see them and just point fingers at them, but Lord, rather, you would allow us to accurately perceive ourselves and to accurately see where there is any shortcoming, where there is any failure, where there is any falling short of your glory, where there is any sin. And Lord, I pray that we would bring that to Jesus Christ today. We thank you, Lord, that for those who are in Christ that the blood of Jesus covers all of our sin. But Lord, we pray that we would not harbor it, we would not encourage it, that we would not promote it, that we would not hide it, but we would deal with it. And by your grace, that we would fight it, that we would run from it, we would turn away from it, we would truly repent. And that we would do this in the great power and strength of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.